0: Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the fair use act, section 504c2, title 17.
1: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of Lolita, starring James Mason, Shelley Winters, Sue Lyon, Peter Sellers, directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in nineteen sixty two in a budget of two million dollars, gross nine and a quarter million at the box office. So we finally come back to our Kubrick retrospective here, Kurt, near the end of the year. We're working through this and coming off of Spartacus, Kubrick wanted to do something much, much smaller in scale. I think we talked about last time how he was unhappy with you know, how a lot of that was out of his control and stuff. So he chooses a controversial novel written by a Russian-American in 1955 about an older man who becomes sexually involved with a girl after he becomes her stepfather. He sure does. Why?
2: <laughs> well, I'm not, I can't say I'm – not, I'm not sure as to why. Maybe this is just the start of uh, Kubrick getting into – A mix of you know, eventually he'll be doing stuff that's about you know being as visually interesting as possible. But now, of course, is where he starts to get into controversial material and stuff that's maybe politically relevant or stuff talking about the the culture or uh, not just making you know kind of like something like the killing. Really, anyone could have made something like that, but something like uh, Lolita, you kind of got to have a uh, a feel for it. You gotta you gotta really know what you're doing. You got and you and you really gotta want. To make this movie.
1: Oh, I agree. And and I think you, you've hit on something. I mean, this is a string of things that are gonna push the envelope a little bit. I mean, you've got Doctor Strange Love coming up next. That's a you know, definitely a political statement. Two thousand one Space Odyssey, we we'll get to talk about that when we get to that one and what that is. But a Clockwork Orange has certainly got a statement to it. And Big then time. then we get into, you know, then it's Barry Lyndon, the shining full metal jacket and eyes wide shut. So, you know, we which <laughs> I don't know what the statement of that last one is. We'll get to that one eventually. Yeah. So, but uh we're here with Lolita at this point and um I got to say, man, like I I was aware that Kubrick had made this film. Uh, I had never seen it before we did this. I had seen part of the remake they did with Dominique Swain and Jer- Jeremy Irons though. Hmm. And and I, and I didn't ever watch all of it because it was just really unsettling and I just I didn't I just couldn't go for it because the way it presented things it it just it just left a weird taste in my mouth so going into this one like I knew already I'm turned off by the subject matter to begin with <laughs> but much like it was with the Devil's Rejects review that we just released, I didn't really like that movie at all, and I didn't like the premise of it, and I didn't like a lot of what was in it. But I, I watched it again, and throughout the review and the discussion with Ron and Aaron from Generation Y, I was able to find like what Rob Zombie was trying to do, you know, what he was mm-hmm. trying to say. And I, I we're gonna do the plot summary in a minute, but that's gonna be my first question to you: is what is it Stanley Kubrick is trying to say about? these characters and these people because there's no one here that I would call like the audiences in for this. There's no like protagonist to root for. You can't root for the main character. Can you without feeling just really scummy?
2: Lolita was the last remaining Kubrick film. I like it was the last one I hadn't seen yet. And for some reason, despite being a fan of his, uh, I never bothered to watch it. Even after buying this big Kubrick Blu-ray set that had everything from 1962 uh, onward, And I knew it was about a book about an older man and a teenage girl. And that, uh, you know, James Mason, Peter Stellers was in it. That's really all I knew. I didn't expect that much from the movie. I had my own ideas about what maybe the plot might be, what might be. For instance, I thought it was going to be a totally straight drama. And I thought maybe it was going to be about like uh, an amorous teenage girl attracted to James Mason. I never would have thought it was a movie about the other way around at all. And then, the, and then the movie starts, and, and we'll get into it, but I'll just say I had no idea what kind of movie this would actually be because I was disgusted, I was disturbed, but I could not stop laughing for the most part. And that combo made this experience all the more twisted. Like I thought I had seen the most twisted and perverted movies ever made, and I think I was incorrect.
1: You know, and that's funny that we'll talk about the lack of what you would consider to be edgy material here, but just the dialogue and the scenery and the way that these characters are interact with each other and what we're told happens. And things hmm. is so much more disturbing, I think, than even something like The Devil's Rejects, where Rob Zombie just shows you somebody sticking a gun and some you know, a, a guy sticking a gun in a woman's you know crotch and stuff like that. Yeah. Like that, you know, that is ev- evocative and gives you this you know real shock, and it was supposed to obviously. Uh, but this movie goes about it in a much more subversive way, and I think this is for me, this is some of Kubrick really trying to kick back at the establishment in Hollywood or movies or whatever that wanted him to be a certain thing. I I got that immediately that he, he picked something as out there as he possibly could and wow, the results. So um, I guess before we get any further into it though, Kirk, I, I wonder how much of our audience has seen this one. I imagine they're probably aware of it, but I wonder how many of them have actually gone down the road with it. Give everybody a plot summary. Tell us what happens in Lolita, and d- let's do beyond the normal. Let's give everybody as much detail as we can, because I don't think we can walk through this movie piece by piece. We really just got to talk about these characters and themes.
2: Pretty much. So so here we go. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, there is uh, the very first scene actually is kind of maybe the biggest spoiler, But, but, uh, but here's Lolita, Professor Humbert is spending the summer with a widow and her teenage daughter before he starts a teaching position uh, at a university. During his stay, his landlord becomes infatuated with him while he becomes infatuated with her daughter Lolita. Uh, Lolita is sent away for summer camp. And when it seems like Humbert might not see Lolita again, he marries the landlord to get closer to Lolita. The landlord discovers uh, Humbert's perversity and after after they're married and in a fit of confusion and rage stumbles outside in the rain and is struck and killed by a car.
1: Are you sure you're not talking about the devil's rejects? Because a lot of this happens in the devil's rejects. I just wanna to- <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm sure a zombie's a Kubrick man.
1: That's what it is, yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, Humbert tracks Lolita down, does not tell her her mother is dead, but it decides instead to take her out for a romantic getaway in the mountains. Uh, While at the hotel, Humbert is met by this guy, Quilty, pretending to be a cop, asking him about him and Lolita. Uh, And after finally confessing that Lolita's mother is dead, we jump forward a few months in time where him and Lolita are actually in an involved relationship under the pretense that they are just stepfather and stepdaughter. Uh, When Humbert is concerned that their secret might be outed, he tries to take Lolita to Mexico, where he thinks they'll be free. Lolita becomes ill, has to stay in a hospital en route to Mexico. And when Humbert arrives to get her so that they can leave, he is told her uncle already got her. And then we then jump forward a few years ahead to find out Lolita is married, pregnant, wants nothing more to do with Humbert. And she explains that Quilty, the man Humbert's been encountering throughout the movie, is the one who took Lolita from the hospital and was in fact another pedophile, who just wanted to have her, but then later abandoned her when he was done with her. Humbert signs over everything he has to Lolita, tracks down Quilty, and murders him in his home, which is actually the first scene in the film.
1: Wow, so lots of twists and turns, and the good old Kubrick time jumps in there. Like you say, it ends with the beginning, or the beginning is the end, however you want to put that. Uh, But in the middle of it, what we have is the story of a pedophile French professor who falls in love with a girl, marries Mm -hmm. her mother so he can be close to her. Mother finds out about it, dies in kind of a rage, suicide, tragic death, whatever. And then he ends up losing her anyway to um, what I can only say Peter Sellers has got to be doing like a terrible Sigmund Freud like riff or something (laughs) as Quilty because it's like everything you think of with Freud you know but it's Peter Sellers and and I'm just sitting there going like what a what a bizarre film because again the only person you really can feel for this is Lolita and while she does things that it makes you the the film wants you to say well see look like she wants it but really she can't want it. She's a kid. She doesn't know what she's doing. And and you're I guess you're glad in the end, or I was at least, that she had moved on from these wackos and you hope that she could have some bit of a normal life. But um boy, the the sordid things that happened in between Kurt, wow. It's,
2: it's 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 unbelievable. I saw a random YouTube comment and it, 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 it kind of sums up what this movie is. Lolita is an unfilmable film.
1: Yeah. And I think that's even what the original trailers were in 62. It was like, how did they make Lolita? Because the reputation yeah. of this book was everywhere at that point. And I, I'm with you. I mean, you know, Kubrick sometimes just like he'll find a book and he just gets obsessed with it and he wants to do it. And, you know, there's legendary stories about stuff he gets obsessed about and won't let go of for years. Napoleon's a great, you know, that's a, one of the probably the more famous ones. But I think he this rattled around in his head somewhere and he just couldn't let it go. And I hmm. got to tell you as disturbing as that is to me if I had picked up a book like this and just read it just to see what it was I could see how this wouldn't get out of my head like you know we we've both watched this movie a while ago and it's been rattling around in my head a long time and I'm kind of glad to have this podcast to get it out of my head cuz I don't know that I want it in there anymore
2: <laughs> Exactly like second we're done recording I can breathe a sigh of relief okay don't have to think about that
1: anymore Right, your disk is now a coaster. I hope because holy there cow, you go. <laughs> I hope you never watch this again. I mean, if we're not tipping our hand already to the end, folks, well, we'll do like this movie does. Let's we'll go ahead and tell you. But now let's get into what happens, and I guess we got to talk about Humbert, the or Hum, our, our main character here, James Mason. And I, I mean, gosh, I, I mean, a fantastic actor, right? I mean, North mm-hmm. by Northwest, and he was in Julius Caesar, and he, I mean, just all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, he was even in Salem's lot, you if you remember that thing, but huh. um to watch him in this it's it's such a different performance, you know it's and it's such a it's a hard, I would imagine it would be a very hard character to play and I gotta say he does a pretty good job with it, but at no point does he do anything to convince me that I should be on his side
2: oh yeah, no way, I don't think Kubrick wants uh us to be on his side either. He, uh, it's, it's weird. Yeah. James Mason, like at that point in his career, you know, was doing very well. And I'm shocked. He said yes to this, uh, not because of, well, it's, I'm shocked. Anyone would say yes to this. Like, you know, True. like, like, because it's just like, no matter, like he saves it, it by delivering such a good performance and playing it, uh, it's he plays it a couple different ways. He plays it where it's kind of funny. He plays it where it's sad. He plays it where it's out and out like a couple of moments where he plays it where it's absolutely frightening. And you re- and like where the monster he is does come to the forefront. But it's just it's uh, it's a it's a bizarre perf- it's a it's a great performance, but, it, but it's it's such a bizarre performance. Uh,
1: Can I tell you my theory on it is they got James Mason and I guess Kubert. I don't know how he convinced him to do it. I mean, who, who knows that story seems to be lost to time. But the thing that that gets me about it, and, I, and I've read several critics that said this, is that, and I haven't read the book and I don't intend to, but that the character in the book is not likable at all. Like you have no likability to the guy. Like he just he comes off as, you know, as skeezy as as his, his actions are. But that Mason gives this guy. a a genuine likability so that the audience just doesn't hate him for what he's doing. Like you're supposed to get behind him on some level. Maybe you don't agree with what he's doing, but you don't hate the person as much as like, he's not, I guess he's not vicious or violent about his obsession with this girl and really with young girls all around, because that's the thing in the book is this guy is, you know, obsessed with these, uh, what does he call them, nymphets or whatever? These, you Mm -hmm. know, pubescent or prepubescent right on the edge of puberty teenage girls the whole time. And it's exploring pedophilia like that is generally we think of pedophilia. We often think of it as same sexuality. I mean, that's a lot of like the true crime version of it, at least. Right. Sure. But. To explore it as heterosexuality, as if you would any kind of romance. Because the way this movie plays off is like a rom-com, which is the weirdest thing ever. It's like the most disturbing oh, yeah. rom-com ever made. <laughs> but it's it plays off some of those same elements. And that's what makes this so strange. And I, I can only think... That's what Kubrick saw as the challenge. I mean, how how on earth could he convince MGM to put this thing out other than it's going to get so much talk about people are going to go see it just to see how in the world we did it. Right.
2: Oh, yeah. That's 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 one of the things that makes me like this movie so much is that it's a horror show. It's a it's a it's a disturbing a movie like the same way that the, the movie, uh, like the Danish film The Hunt is another movie that deals with pedophilia or mm. – or you can just, even just go flat out and go for Silence of the Lambs dealing with uh, murder. That kind of just disturbing nature is that it is that but it's not formatted like that. It doesn't play like that is that. That's a, that's a, that's a thing about the way James Mason play this and the way Kubrick plays James Mason is I believe I read something there that Kubrick made a conscious decision to not – ever have a moment where James Mason explains himself or explains why he's attracted to this girl or defend why he's attracted to this girl. It's just like every, every, you know, all the the best villains are the heroes of their own story. So the last thing this guy is thinking is that he's doing anything wrong. He's just, again, it, it does play like a, like a romance movie, like a romantic film. So it's just, it's so casual how he, he thinks that this is, this is, so okay what he's doing and that just makes it even worse if it, as if you know it makes it so much more disturbing than if he was like you know uh drooling over her or like you know had pictures of her over the wall like some kind of a serial killer just he, he plays this like as though it was some, uh, someone his own age or as though he was her age or he, he plays it so casually but it's just it's, it's, it's it's, it's, it makes me queasy when i think of this movie
1: no I'm, I'm with you i mean it certainly does feel that way and we have to shift over now to our titular star sue lyon as dolores lolita hayes here now it, from the book they raised her age up two years she's supposed to be 12 in the book she's 14 in the story and that was her age at the time and there's no easy way to say this. They chose her because she was more well-developed than the other 14-year-olds they tried out for the part. And that's just pretty much it. And that's disturbing that a group of, and you can imagine it, a group of men, you know, sitting around going, "Mm, doesn't look enough, get another one. You know, I mean, you can see it. And uh, and, I mean, and in light of recent news coming out of Hollywood, it just makes that even more disgusting. But, you know, she was praised for her role here. uh, If not, become typecast because she played it again in night of the iguana and which mm. i think is a fabulous film it's a much better film than this and it kind of disappeared you know after the 70s like you know didn't really do much had a lot of you know personal problems and things like that but really hasn't been active since the early 80s but boy, what a splash to make in your first role to come off of and play in one of these controversial roles like this. it's almost it, it, you feel bad for her as an actress though, because how do you ever top that? I mean, it's very hard to do,
2: yeah, I think she actually is really good in the movie, and I was kind of disappointed when I looked at her you know filmography, and I found out that she kind of just kind of stopped acting. It's like,, ah, that's too bad because she was really good in this movie, like she could have been like another. Like doing like Jodie Foster type stuff or something because I definitely thought of you know Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver just a little bit as far as I, yeah, that, a child in a role like that
1: right uh, you know what that's that's a good example of a film that does some of the same things but handles it much differently maybe one day we'll get around to doing that one but yeah hmm. good good side point
2: and and again I do I do like her performance and it her performance does kind of play into the the comedy of it which is that she is way too young to realize that she is the Vic, like it's it's like she doesn't re it's like she's in the ocean in the movie jaws and she isn't afraid of sharks or something. Or it's like mm. she has, she doesn't realize what kind of danger she's in. She is so, she's as casual about this relationship as, uh, uh, James Mason is at least until, you know, the, the time jump when she's a little bit wiser and older, you know, 18 years old, she kind of re she kind of snaps out of it a little bit. Um, but some of the scenes of where, you know, James, where what James Mason is doing is so horrific, where he's doing things that it's like he he, he needs to go to jail for the rest of his life for some of the stuff he's doing. And she is totally oblivious to the fact that uh, he's doing it, that he what's going on in his head.
1: See, I think that's the the scary part of this is that you never she never really knows how sick he is. Right. And maybe she's not because she's a child still, or at least has a child's mind in a, you know, burgeoning woman's body. She doesn't have any way of comprehending how sick this is. Right. Because I mean, the attention is, is intoxicating for her and which is why she plays up some of it the way she does. And I mean, you know, the, the famous scenes with the lollipops and the straws and all that. How many times have you seen that replayed by the way? I mean, holy cow, you now know where it all comes from is, Mm -hmm. is this. And, um, she plays seductress really well, but part of me is like it's a kid not realizing how deep they're in this thing. Like, do you remember yeah. uh, Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear and Juliette Lewis oh, yeah. and Robert De Niro and some of the really uncomfortable shit they get into?
2: Oh um, yeah, It's pretty yeah. similar. Yeah, yeah.
1: I had I was thinking like, holy cow! I, it's like I bet Marty made him watch this and said just do that, and then the two of them Kinda, being yeah. who they are, just did it. And I mean it really plays off a lot of the same way. It's very it's very much like Juliet Lewis and Robert De Niro from you know more modern cinematic uh, mind like mine. Uh, but to watch this here and I'm trying to put myself in 1962 Kurt. Mm-hmm. I mean we you know Kennedy <laughs> was about to be murdered, but we you know we had we had things going on in this country but this was not the kind of thing you talked about in public. We weren't at the sexual revolution yet. You know, and all this. Yep. So this would have blown people's minds in a theater. I can only imagine this just blew people away.
2: Oh, yeah, certainly, like you know, uh, an American film, a Hollywood film. The guy who just did Spartacus, uh, like a guy like James Mason, Peter Sellers, like these are these are movie stars. Like it's a, the people who made this. It's such a Hollywood production, and yet the end result is like nothing like Hollywood was making at least then.
1: No, not at all, and I mean, it, you talk about the stars. I mean, you've got Shelley Winters here, who's a major motion picture star for decades. Mm. You know, and may- this is about ten years before like the defining role of her career in *Poseidon Adventure*, but <laughs> still, you know, somebody who, who you you think Shelley Winters, you know, that's a star. You know, Peter yeah. Sellers, who had been on, you know, people knew who he was at this time. And then, you, I mean, you look down the list, I and mean, you got even Lois Maxwell from the old James Bond movies popped that's up right. in this thing. And I was like, ah, oh, Money Penny, please save this <laughs> awful thing. You know. <laughs> so, but then you've got James Mason again. It all centers around him as this likable. Just sort of like, yeah, I'm a pedophile. It just is what it is. But he never explains himself. Like you say, like he never goes through the oh, this is why I'm this way or this is what I like or whatever. And to me, that I mean, you just called this a horror show. I, I think this makes this absolutely a horror show because he never explains himself. I mean, that's the problem with so many good thrillers, right? Is that they when that once they explain it to you, it's like, eh. You know, or maybe I, eh, that was okay, or maybe oh, that was good, you know, but it, it always unravels a little too much, right? Never knowing and never seeing, just seeing the results of what this guy did and what these lifestyle choices lead him to is so unnerving.
2: Yeah, it's like... They don't have, I think, uh, you know, it's been a while. I, I, I made sure to make my notes as detailed as possible so I don't have to actually rewatch the, the movie. But as I recall, there was one or, there's only like one or two moments of uh, voiceover narration. Did he not narrate the scene where he pulls, he's thinking about pulling a gun on Shelly Winters? Yeah, yeah like, but he talks that, about that, how that, he
1: can't do it. You know, like he's, I, I yeah. can't kill her, you know, even though I probably should or whatever, yeah. yeah it
2: was like that, he, that we get, we can get explained. But the rest of the movie, it's like, you know, it's again, it's like it's well, it's, it's, it's like it's
1: like Nigel said in Spinal Tap, some things are best left not known, you know, yeah. I mean, just let it go. And, and I'm, I'm with him. I don't I don't want him to. I want to make this clear. I don't want him to explain. I don't think thematically it makes any difference that he explains himself, because is it going to make that more acceptable? You know, like if 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 the bad guy in a war movie explains to you his or the supposed bad guy in the war movie explains to you his point of view, you at least get where he's coming from. Maybe you don't agree with it, but you know where he's coming from, right? Like think think back to uh, to to Paths of Glory. Like we knew hmm. exactly where those upperly mobile generals were going are coming oh, yeah. from, right? Like you know, it, it them explaining it doesn't change any of that. I mean, it just gives you, okay, well now I know your motivation. You're just, you know, you're just looking out for your own, you know, that's mm-hmm. just how you are. But, uh, and, and that doesn't, but it doesn't make what they do any less horrific. And the same here, had he explained it all away in some way, would it have made any of it more tolerable?
2: it, it, it I think it's, uh, the lack of explanation, it kind of, it's a realistic depiction of the sickness because people who are like this, they too, probably don't think anything of it. They don't think it's is it's <laughs> it's something don't maybe they don't think it's something to be ashamed of. They don't think it's something that's a, 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 a problem. And that's at least that that's the way it seems James Mason is is playing. It. like he doesn't think it's a problem. Although little by little cracks do start to form like the fact that he you know he wants to leave for Mexico. Uh, after the neighbors start inquiring about exact, you know, about, uh, you know, you, uh, the conversations he's having with his stepdaughter uh, that does show little by little that, you know,
1: well, he keeps talking about her and he keeps talking about how beautiful she is. And just like, he says that so many times that the neighbors get suspicious, like yeah. you're really like, that's getting to be a little uncomfortable, you know? Hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I, I that's the thing uh, about this is, Everything Humbert does, every, everything that he does is so he can try to be closer to Lolita, so he can have this relationship with her, right? And let's just talk about him and Charlotte, Chili Winters, the, the put-upon stepmother here or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what a, what a sad woman. You know, I mean that, that's oh, yeah. I mean, Shelly really is is a great performance it's not much of a role it, once again the women get the short shrift in the Kubrick film uh, uh-huh. the, theme you' know, rinse repeat but uh, she really does a lot with it she may have the best performance next to Lions in the whole film um, I mean I, I really feel for her like it's sad when she runs out in the rain and gets not you know killed uh, great Gatsby style. I mean, really, that's 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 actually what I was thinking of and not the devil's rejects. Thank goodness um, (laughs) when this happened. But that's very much the same kind of thing. I think that's the thematic element, too, that our author was going for. And that um, I think that's something that uh, Kubrick wanted to make sure he had from uh, Nabokov's novel in in the film, that she meets a tragic end because of this guy's selfish choices, even though he's honest with her about it. That doesn't make it any better.
2: Oh yeah, it's a very. It's a very. It starts off as like a comically kind of sad. The way she's like, she she won't stop hitting on him to the point, and clearly James Mason wants you know nothing to do with her. It starts off as kind of funny because you know she's the, the 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 you know she's the, the horny widow uh, who's you know attracted to James Mason because he's so because she it's you know the, the idea that someone is attracted to this character when you know what's going on in his head. Uh,
1: Oh, but I it can see it though. I mean, think about it from her perspective. This is a, a well-to-do, well-adjusted Renaissance man. I mean, he's a French teacher. He speaks a foreign language. That's romantic. No. He's he's not bad looking. And I mean, at this point in her life, what you know, she's not going to be choosy, right? He's pretty good compared to what else may be hanging around in the town, right? So she's. I mean, I can see why she's attracted to him. The fact is that when she learns what he's all about, it it drives her mad.
2: Yeah that 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 bit. Uh... That's when it kind of that that moment there that moment where he, he reads his diary, which is like, dude, why would you leave that in anywhere where someone could read it, or where the where the mother could read it? It's like, I have a theory you know?
1: about that that he needed some way to start that conversation. And how, how on earth else could you start that, right? So maybe this is this was his way of starting that conversation. The fact that Kubrick does such a good – I mean, it is a good shot. The way it's, it's, you know, you're know you supposed to pay attention to, like, that matters. And then she like, sits there and pours over it and the looks on her face. Like, I get it. As to, that would be his way of doing it. Like, I, I have, I've had friends in my life, Kurt, that, like, when they would break up with someone, they can never just come straight out and say, look, I don't want to date you anymore. They would always come up with some, like, elaborate way to pick a fight. Yeah. You know, so then they could get it out in the midst of the heat, right? And I mm-hmm. think that's exactly what Humbert's doing here too. He's like, how on earth can I bring this up to this woman? Eh, I'll just kind of leave this out and she's nosy enough. She'll bumble across it and then then the cat will be out of the bag. And
2: when she does realize it, it does get scary. But I do like how throughout the first act of the movie, how she – much like Lolita herself, she's obli- – that Shelley Winters is oblivious to – the idea that this guy's attracted to, uh, you know, her daughter, like there's like the bit where they're at the movies and, uh, Shelly Winters can't see that they're that he's holding her hand and her, her daughter's hand, stuff like that. Or the bit where after, Oh yeah. One of my favorite James Mason bits of acting in the movie is where, uh, he's all set to go. Lolita is off to, uh, uh, summer camp, Probably not going to see her, you know, because he's only staying in this house for like the summer until he gets uh, this job. He can move someplace else. And he says goodbye to Lolita. He kind of – at first if you didn't know that, you know, uh, if you look at the time, you see that there's there's two hours left. But you might be thinking, okay, it's like he's gotten this out of his system. It's over. He's going to move on with his life. He's going to get with a woman his own age. He's going to carry on. And it does look like it's over. Then he gets the note from Shelley Winters saying – well, it's something along the lines of if, uh, if you leave fine, but if you stay, I want you to marry me. And he starts laughing as he's reading the note. And this is where the queasiness started to kick in because at first I was thinking, oh, he's laughing at the idea that like he's laughing and a charming way. Oh, she's so attracted to me. And then it occurred to me, oh, he's not laughing because of these affections. He's laughing because how did I not think of this? Exactly. Like I just found the perfect in to stay next to lolita and uh, and the, he and he's, he's he gets starts laughing and it's so disgusting uh and then because it's like it's like he's laughing as though you know it's like he's about to pull a heist and he just found out what the combination to the safe is or something yeah it's, it's like
1: diabolical in some ways, oh like yeah the, the laughter really goes into the oh i love it what a good plan comes together i mean that's yeah. exactly what it feels like and i'm like Oh, you sick bastard. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there revolting against this film the whole time. And I'm going, but isn't that the point? And and it it, it dawned on me watching this because I got to admit, I made it through it one time, Kurt. And then I I caught some clips, you know, later on to refresh myself because I couldn't just rewatch the whole thing again. Hmm. But it, it dawned on me. I said, I think that's the point. I think Kubrick wanted to take something that was disgusting. You know, let's just say it, it is. And then he wanted to present it to us in a way that made us go, holy cow, that's really disgusting. And how disgusting can it be? But also, why isn't it more violent or overt? It's all kind of subtle. And that makes it even more disgusting and scary. I think that's the point.
2: Oh, yeah. I think Kubrick, he knew that. And again, I haven't read the book, but I'm guess. But uh, the yeah, the way Kubrick presents this, it's that, yeah, he's presenting a it's like he's making a horror movie, a psychological thriller, but instead of making it, you know, making it like Dracula or making it like a monster movie, he's going to make it like a, it's like, I was going to say a drama. He doesn't make it like a drama. He makes it like, like,
1: well, it's, it's just, it's a dramedy actually, because there's comedy we haven't gotten to yet with this quilty guy. But that's oh, the yeah. other part is when he starts introducing the laughs, you know? That's when it gets really uncomfortable.
2: It get, oh yeah, it gets like it, it it it's it's like it gets funny and it gets more disgusting because uh uh you know, I'm 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 laughing at something and then I'm realizing did I did I just laugh at that kind of a scene? Because like, if that well, if this how can scene happens, you have not
1: to- laugh at Peter Sellers going and the libido and the I mean he's just going on and on and it's like I mean, it's like you, you feel like you're in eighth grade again giggling at sex ed, but that's exactly how it, uncomfortable and weird and funny it all is supposed to come off. That's the part that got me is I was like, I mean, I laughed at it and then I felt really bad about it.
2: Oh, yeah, it's exactly like this is something Roger Ebert said. He was talking about the movie Naked Gun, which, you know, obviously a whole different ballgame. I
1: didn't think we'd be referencing that today.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but, but what he what he said was is uh, he would laugh twice at every joke. He would laugh because he thought because you know it was funny, and then he would laugh, going, "I can't believe I just laughed at something that silly," and that's similar to that's the way I laughed during this movie, where it almost it actually reminds me a little bit of the movie uh, Goodfellas, where I'm laughing all throughout Goodfellas, but there's a but it, the laughs get blurred, where I, I forget, am I laughing because this is funny or am I laughing out of nervous tension? And that's similar to Lolita where it's like, I can't tell if I'm laughing because that was funny or it was just so audacious and I'm laughing at the attempt to make it funny. And it's like, and all this swirling around in my head with the disgusting material, it just makes it like, you know, we haven't talked about the fact the movie is two and a half hours long. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's so you're just in that mode that, the, you know, in the, that stuff in your stomach is just there for, you know. For for, for so much longer, which makes it even more twisted.
1: I mean, that's the thing is Kubrick is going to make you and I'll say this again. This is what Rob Zombie loves to do. He loves to rub your face in it for as long as he possibly can. And I think Kubrick's the same way. He's like, oh, I've got you here now. So now I'm going to make you not only eat this, but you're going to eat a second helping of it. Yeah. And and you're going to and you're going to feel really bad about it because you're going to go. I really don't want any more of that. But then you're going to eat it anyway, because I'm telling you, you have to and that's and that just goes on and on and on and i i mean I, i'm sitting there again watching this and i'm just i'm thoroughly unnerved the entire time and i'm you know i'm the horror buff right so like this shouldn't yeah you know, there should be nothing that can you know you know get to me anymore right i'm a desensitized horror film fan but this is one of the most uncomfortable things i've ever watched by far. And it's it's not only to the, the subject matter, and I, w- I want to get past that. It is the way that they play it, and the way that they don't show you everything. It'd be one thing, and this is one thing the 1997 movie really gets into, is the you know the way Jer- Jeremy Irons and Dominic Swain just w- all over him and stuff like that. They, they can't do that here, right? But they do just enough to make you complete the sentence in your own head. And I think that's even yeah. more disturbing.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like when we were talking about Seven, like it's not a violent movie, but when that movie is over, you've pictured more violent things than you've ever seen in any movie. Exactly. And And this and this movie, it's like, yeah, like I've seen a lot of twisted movies dealing with with, with violence or, or sexual perversity. Like there's a movie called Compliance.
1: i uh, a very that movie, yes, yeah. And
2: it's... And it's, uh, I think, I actually think it's a, it's a very good movie. It's very well made. It deals based with on incredible a true story too. So. Based on a, a v- very disturbing true story, and it's a very disturbing movie. And when it's over, I, I'm, uh, as disturbing as it is, I am just kind of like, well, that was, that was very disturbing. That was, and, and uh, it was good, but it was very disturbing, and I, you know, did not enjoy that, but it was very good. But with Lolita, is I'm laughing in a movie where that stuff is going on. So I'm like, it's like a. It's so guilty. Like I'm enjoying myself during this kind of movie. And it's like, but, and it's like, that shouldn't be. It's like, you know, it's again, much, much similar to to Goodfellas. Like I'm laughing my ass off and these guys are, you know, shoving ice picks into the back of guys' heads like that. And yet they're making jokes, you know, two seconds later, like I I might as well let this guy drive, stuff like that.
1: Well, see, and and here's another thing, and I don't know if Kubrick was going for this or not, but it's a a good enough time to bring this discussion up. There's, There's always this uncomfortable line of how far can you go in a movie with American cinema, right? And, like, violence and sex mixed together used to equal X rating all the way, especially if you were an independent, right? If you had a big studio, you might get them to bump it down to R because, I mean, think of like the original Death Wish and the the assault right. scene in that. It's incredibly graphic. You know, oh, like yeah. any other... Uh, company makes that movie and that's an X and nobody knows about that. It's some underground legend, but Charles bronze is <laughs> in it and it's a major motion picture. So they, they let it slide. Right. It, it, and American audiences and particularly like the MPAA, always have this thing about like, y- you can have all the sex you want, but, you know, you got to tone down the violence or you can have all the violence you want, but you can't mix it with sex. Like, it's, there's always this sliding scale to it. And I wonder if Kubrick is not going, you know, I just did this you know battle movie where we killed thousands of people and nobody blinked an eye about any of it. And I crucified half the cast and nobody said anything yeah. and all this stuff. And he said, so maybe I'm going to just show you like, well, OK, we're not going to have a violent movie we're going to have a movie where pedophilia goes on and it, she doesn't like have to hit him in the face and be, you know, coerced to it. She goes along with it. Cause that's the thing that happens in the second act that turns is they have a romantic relationship, a legitimate romantic relationship, Kurt. And that is the part where I'm like, okay, I see now what you've done. Stanley, you wanted me to laugh at this and feel bad about it. And now you want to show me how much of a bad person I am. And I get it. I am. And these people are horrible and I want them <laughs> all to die. <laughs> that that is what is happening yeah.
2: that is true because it's like there's a lot of laughs in the you know first half of the movie but uh pretty much like from the moment they decide to go to mexico the laughs they do dry up aside from one scene that i think is unintentionally but intentionally funny but yeah once this movie uh because yeah the first half of the movie it's like you know a couple tweaks this is like you know it's like a sitcom plot or something like uh uh, a couple tweaks, you maybe could get this on 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 TV as a, as a comedy of like because there's been movies made about you know the, the older guy and the and the younger girl, but mm-hmm. oh, this think, is about, a-
1: think about the Crush with Carrie always and uh, um, Alicia Silverstone when she was a teenager. I mean, in that mm-hmm. one, she's the aggressor, and it's, it's like Fatal Attraction with the teenagers. What that movie turns out to be, but a lot of it, especially the first act, plays a lot like Lolita, and that's yeah. not on. That's not a mistake. That was done on purpose.
2: Oh yeah, and yeah, and 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 when and when this movie does make that turn, and it's like you're embedded in this kind of very twisted comedy, and w- when it suddenly does make the turn of when James Mason does start to he loses the charm a little bit and starts to like you know the first chunk of the movie he's wearing you know three piece suits, but I just I just when I think of the scene of like him in the hospital he's wearing like this some kind of like you know a uh, uh, down jacket and he he's starting to look more and more like a nut job, and he's starting to get a little bit like sweaty and disheveled, right. and it's like you know he's the, the the sort of the more the image we might have of a of a of a pedophile, not like not what he is in the first movie, you know, the right. completely well to do. Because that's the thing, like when the movie starts, you might be on his side and think, oh, he's just kind of you know he's he'll he'll snap out of it. And then an hour and a half goes by, it's like okay, he's going to snap out of it, right? And he doesn't. <laughs> st- and the movie ends like you know, jumping ahead, yeah. we find out this guy dies in prison. And he probably still never snapped out of it. He never oh, still, realized. Still
1: he's, obsessed with this girl. You, you exactly. can tell. Like, even though she's thrown him off and he's gone and killed, you know, the, her other, uh, suitor, if you will, now yeah. in some sort of twisted revenge, uh, I mean, it's like he had nothing else to live for, so he might as well throw his life away. And I think that's exactly what he does. We got to talk about Quilty like in detail here, though, because mm-hmm. we've talked about the seller's performance, and I told you it was sort of a riff on Freud. I think I don't have anything to prove that. I'm just telling you that's how I read it. Huh. Um, but I'm assuming he's a part of this unintentionally funny, unfunny scene that you were referencing a minute ago.
2: Well, no, he. he... He's not that the, the scene, the, the unintentionally funny, funny scene is where he's, is where, uh, the, the breakup scene where, oh, where, okay,
1: <laughs> where Humbert
2: does come clean, uh, finally. Yeah. Cause but, it is,
1: I think part of that is 1960s acting and hysterics. And that's just what, what Shelley Winters went for. <laughs> it's kind of insane. So. Oh, yeah. But uh, I'm talking more about wh- oh.
2: where he breaks it off with uh, the very, the very end where he, oh. where he's crying. And about that scene, I got to say, uh, that is, uh, I, I that I, because again, at this point in the movie, let's say it's been like, you know, 30, 40 minutes without a laugh, but that scene where she's saying, I've understood, I, I finally kind of get it that you're, you're a monster or, or I don't even know if she goes that far. She like it's almost like she still has not clicked, but but she does break it off. She does, I think she does say like you did use me or she realizes Oh, you're talking about
1: oh, you're talking about Lolita breaking it off then. Okay. That, oh yeah. That makes more sense. I, I didn't know I, I don't know that I read that as funny. I could see how you'd say that, but I, I didn't oh, no, really but, catch it as that. But that's funny. So that you well, saw it that way.
2: What makes that here's what makes that funny to me was A that again, the idea that Mason does not get it. Is that he's, he's so emotional, like as though his life is over <laughs> because this teenager is breaking up with him. And it's like, you, you want him like, even in this moment where he's a monster, you do want to say like, like, dude, you can a good, like it's not over. Like you're 49, just find a girl, a woman, your own age or something. But what made that mo- scene so funny to me was the score. It was this, it was so the rest of the music wasn't exactly like this, but the music, it was so heartstrings tugging, sappy Raw, like, uh, like, like you would have in a you know super sappy love story. And what it reminded me of was the uh you so stuff you would hear in a in a in a Warner Brothers cartoon where <laughs> where where a scene is supposed to be funny because a character is crying. Like I, I think of uh the one where Bugs is with the penguin, and every time Bugs tries to leave the penguin, the penguin starts crying, and we get that that ex- almost exact same heartstrings violin. Uh, uh, music, and that 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 was playing during this scene, where really this is a positive moment. This is like finally, this like the, you know, uh, there's girls found a way to get out of the clutches of this animal, and yet the scene is being played of it's so sad and tragic that this love this love story is over, uh, and it's again kind of like the movie is pl- still playing itself as like as this love story or, or romance. I I just found that. I couldn't tell if that was – I found it – I thought that was Kubrick mocking that kind of scene, mocking that kind of heartstrings moment by having uh, this monster break down into tears like that. Um,
1: I think you're right on. I think that's exactly what he's doing. He is mocking the absurdity that – were you really going along with this as a romance, people? Don't you see how pathetic this man is? And that's, that's what, what that. Humbert comes off as and that is pathetic. I'm like, man, this. if there was any other reason, like, well, you feel good for Lolita for getting this loser out of her life, and you hope that she's moved on to something better, you know, yeah. uh, even, even though you also are told she went through more pedophilia. Because th- that's the thing I wanted to ask you about Peter Sellers here. Did you ever get the hint that Quilty was just another pedophile that was sort of following along with this and <laughs> kind of undermining everything?
2: Not until the end, I, because I got to say, Peter Sellers in this movie gives one of my favorite performances in the history of film. I've always been a fan of his. With a few things of his I've seen, he wasn't. I don't know if he was that prolific. He did a lot of stuff, but it's like I, I particularly like you know Revenge of the Pink Panther, the one where Herbert Lama's is the villain, yeah. and 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 Doctor Strange. Love, I have, you know I am just a fan of his because I think I think he might have. Uh, well, Like the specific kind of comedy he does, I think he might have been the best at that then, and no one's ever topped him. And when he was in this movie, like I said, I thought this was going to be a very straight movie. So the I think the first line he says is that he comes up under the blanket uh, covered in wine bottles and stands up and he says, I'm Spartacus. Like if I'm not mistaken, that's like yeah, the first yeah. line of the movie. Yeah, he, and he like,
1: tries to uh, – and I was like, oh, that's uh, Kubrick's middle finger to his previous film that he hated.
2: So. Yeah, but I thought I thought that was awesome. Like like Kubrick is okay doing references to his own movies. Like jumping head to Clockwork Orange goes uh, – Alex goes to the record store. Right there at the front where you can see is an album of the soundtrack for 2001. Uh, I love that Kubrick, you know, being such a – he is such a dark, twisted kind of guy, but he knows how to, you know, well he's Drop a, a Cenophile.
1: I mean, that's the thing. Oh, yeah. And and he's and you know, nowadays that kind of self referentialism is something that we see so many filmmakers do, right? Like we talked about a couple of them. Your zombie does it. Uh you know, gosh, Scorsese does it. Um, and Tarantino can't help himself but to do it sure. like, twelve yeah. times, you know. Right. <laughs> so but so that it may not be like as big a deal nowadays because it gets done so much or whatever. But in these days, like again, amongst you know, cinema folks and stuff who were really starting to figure out, hey, is this Kubrick guy for real or not? This would have been the kind of thing that they got off on, that they liked, mm-hmm. you know. Which is interesting because this is a movie uh, that's so disturbing. Otherwise, How, you know, if the only thing you can try to praise is, well, it's made really well. It's the best pedophile film ever made. You know, <laughs> that's, that's all you can say. I mean, it's it's hard to praise this thing because the subject matter is so dark.
2: Oh yeah, and but but, but about. Peter Peter Sellers, like he, you know, he he kicks off the movie with the with the with the comedy. And again, I was so not ready for 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 laughs. And all of a sudden, everything he was saying, playing, he was playing this, you know, drunk uh, uh, rich guy in this mansion. Everything he was saying was making me laugh. Just like just the trying to play ping pong with this guy, and just just random bit. Like all of a sudden, he reaches into his pocket, pulls out five balls at once, and tosses them out. Just random. Stuff like that. And I got to wonder if that's Peter Sellers being let loose or if Kubrick thought of that. Whatever it is, I was like, man, this guy's funny.
1: And uh, he, I, you know, he is very funny in it. You're right. And if it weren't for the fact of the dark turn his character takes, it'd be my favorite performance in the film. It's, it, it, You know, I give that to Lion and Winters kind of in a co bit because I think they do well with what they've got there. Sellers, though, and I think maybe that's the subversive nature of the the Sellers character is that you don't you just expect him to be this eccentric kind of weirdo, you know, or maybe he's a police officer because that's kind of what he plays himself off as. But he's really not. He's just another creep. But he's got a much more like he's even more sinister than Humbert is.
2: Oh, yeah. Like like it's, it is a pre doesn't have that much screen time per se, but. It's one of those characters – it's almost like Kaiser Solze, where when you watch it again, you realize there is so much happening from the, if you look at the movie from this character's POV. And I love the way the, the movie starts with him. I think, it's, I think it's just a brilliant way to start movies. Start a movie with a man killing another man, and over the course of the movie – you like b- without telling them specifically why he killed him. But over the course of the movie, you start to find out why this guy killed him or you start to yeah. wonder. It's like, so what is this guy going to do that would drive James Mason to murder? Like a very classic kind of, um, uh, mm-hmm. a uh, mystery, uh, uh, well, it's, it's a
1: noir, noir thing, right? And I mean, sure. we talked about Kubrick's first films were all noir, right? And so obviously mm. he's going back to that too, because again, he wanted to get away from that big studio picture that he had done. So he went back to Roots. I mean, he went back to The Killing. You know, and it would be like if the killing started with the scene at the airport at the end where uh, Sterling Hayden goes, what's the difference? You know, and then you yeah. figure out what it leads up to. Like, I, you know, there's your, there's your fan at it. Do that. That would be kind of fun to see, you know, how that film would unroll out knowing how it ends like that. I, I took that as what it was. I mean, I, I kind of like the little noir nod in it again. But again, hmm. I, I lose myself in saying, oh, that's kind of cool. But then I'm like, but this is a movie about pedophiles and I have to hate it. You know, like I just keep coming back to that and I can't get over that. Maybe that's my own fault. But I, I, even cinematically, though, I, is there anything like just greatly interesting? I mean, I talked a little bit about the the um, way he, you know, he shot that whole scene with the journal and all that kind of stuff. But there's I mean, there's nothing really just, I don't know, grand about the way this looks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Not really. Kubrick hadn't he hadn't gotten into that yet. He hadn't gotten into the you know spectacular visuals he was still doing stuff that focused more on character and then you know two movies later he jumps to 2001 where you know he could care less about characters but let's just make this look as cool as possible and yeah, it's 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 not particularly it's nothing about the visuals uh standout it's more about the the performances and, and the and the characters he's focusing on this time
1: and I think that's a good point to, to wrap up the show here and give final thoughts and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Lolita, Kurt?
2: Like I said, I, I skipped this movie for the longest time. And I actually, I really regret it because I, you know, I saw The Room. I saw Troll 2. I saw Showgirls before crossing <laughs> off my last Kubrick movie. And I thought I had this movie pegged as it was going to be a creepy drama or a thriller that I'd watch. And then I forgot this is a Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, and as disturbing as it was, I have to say, I had such a blast watching it. I've never had so much fun being so intensely creeped out. Like not just kind of, sort of creeped out. Like it's not like American beauty, that relationship, which is, you know, kind of, sort of acceptable and it ends in a, in a very positive way where the, you know, spacey kind of snaps out of it. But in this movie, James Mason, again, he could, this character literally goes to his grave and he'd probably tell you, I don't know, I, uh, he didn't think he did anything uh, untoward. But I was, I was legitimately queasy from that moment where James Mason went out of his way to ogle this 14-year-old girl. And at the same time, I laughed out loud more during this scene than during actual comedies, like the, the psychiatrist scene where Peter Sellers, in the prototype of, the strange dr strange love character he's reading off like i've been studying which is really disturbing he's like i've been studying this girl later on you find out that that's way more insidious than you thought Mm -hmm. and and he just says and she sighs a lot you know she just kind of goes and just as he was doing it i was just i was laughing so hard i was like missing dialogue and i had to rewind the movie um and i and again like i was saying with like with with naked guns like i would laugh and then i would question myself it's like i can't believe i laughed at something so insidious, something so disturbing. Um, and Kubrick took what on paper is a very depressing story and made somehow made it hilarious. I think James Mason gives a performance for the books, amping the creep factor up to a million. I mean, Hannibal Lecter is a character. We literally see rip people's face off and try to eat them. And he's not as creepy as James Mason uh, in this movie. And Peter Sellers, Turns in one of my all time personal favorite supporting performances in any movie. I, I laughed at pretty much every word that came out of his mouth. And what I thought would be an okay movie, maybe just a movie to be like, okay, let's just cross it off so I can say I saw it. This actually has ended up being one of my favorite uh, Stanley Kubrick movies. However, I don't know if I'll ever feel like watching it again, but I give it, uh, I give it an extra large popcorn.
1: I agree with everything you just said in the, in review. All right. It, it, the performances take this beyond the pale of what it could have been, right? The camera work, and eh, you know, that's kind of here or there, but the performances work in a very difficult setting and stuff. But because I can't imagine any scenario in which I would want to rewatch this, you know, <laughs> I cannot in, in my review style, tell anybody else you should ever see it either like I think it's one of those things that might be best digested if you're around a group of friends that want to you know talk about film and things like that or maybe even want to talk about the difficult subject of pedophilia you know Mm -hmm. it might be something like from an academic perspective I could see myself watching again or someone else watching but I could I can't recommend it as a form of entertainment like at all because I can't ever tell you I was really entertained by this and maybe that's just my own personal point of view with the subject matter and stuff, but I could never find myself entertained, even when I think I was supposed to be. Like, there's parts mm-hmm. of this movie where clearly Kubrick wants me to laugh at that. It's, it's funny. I'm supposed to laugh at that, but I can't because I know what's underneath it. And I think you made, you made a great word there about how insidious all of the, the uh, quilty observations of Lolita are and when you mm-hmm. find out what becomes of that. And you're like, oh, that's he was just a stalker. That's really yeah. uncomfortable now. It does change the way you see the film. That said, I'll give it credit in this area. I was never bored with it. It's two and a half hours of it. It's a slog to get through. But I was never bored. Just more as I was like, how much longer do I have to sit in here? You know, It's kind of like being in traction, if you've ever done that at the chiropractor's office. Like It's helpful, but I don't know how much longer I can stand it. You know, or maybe being in a sauna. I don't know. You know, you, you pick your poison, but I don't know how much longer I can live with it. Or I'll give you a better one, Kurt. I used to run half marathons with my wife and, and great exercise, more power to you if that's your cup of tea. But every time I was running one of those, which is 13 miles and, and some change, somewhere around mile six, I would begin to ask myself, why am I doing this? To myself <laughs> like half of it like i found like half that amount was fine for me it's a great run great exercise you know but like something that's going to take me two hours to do or two and a half hours to do i i just i question my will to complete it or live or anything <laughs> else and i kind of feel the same way about this movie so i can't give it anything higher than a small popcorn i just i have to trash it because it's the worst <laughs> it is the worst one i've seen so far and i and i'm knowing i know what's coming all right. I know what's coming up in, in the filmography, and I don't think I'm going to be as turned off as I was to this. Like, I I just <laughs> something about this one I just cannot let go of. And so I'm going to go the complete opposite direction of you and and, <laughs> and give it the lowest of ratings. And just I'm glad to put it out of my mind, too, because I never want to come back to it. Uh, thankfully, we get to go to something that's much more. I think going will bring a much different kind of discussion when we get around to talking about Doctor Strange love, but that's yeah, much much
2: more much lighter topic. The end of the world,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, who who knew that that would be that way? But yes, uh, yeah. and then, then nuclear we, holocaust. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, sometimes it it takes it takes. Um, from mems like Lolita to make that subject matter more attainable. Maybe, maybe that was the gateway exactly. drug. Yeah. Let's look at it that way. But you know, until then, Kurt, we got a lot of other things coming up. I mean, we're getting near the end of 2017 here. We've got a lot of stuff on the feed right now. You came back with a great review of Blade Runner 2049. Uh, so hoping to get more of those uh, famous factor uh, reviews out of you. And then of course we'll have you back to do this, but probably our next uh, stop along the way, man, we're going to be talking some star Wars and um, right. there, There's a lot of. I watched the trailer once, my man, and I'm telling you, I'm like, okay, I don't want to see any more because this looks like it's going to be amazing.
2: Oh yeah, I uh, I made sure to not watch the trailer because, I mean, the last trailer and just the fact Star Wars movie, it's like they got my they got my twenty bucks for the IMAX ticket. They they sold it when they when they said they're making a movie called Star Wars Episode Eight. But yeah, I'm, I'm I can't wait to see that.
1: Oh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Of course, more stuff coming out on the feed. Subscribe, folks. Continue to play podcast uh, slash Filmstrip on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. And leave us a review. If you like the show, please leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We appreciate your support. And as always, thank you for tuning in. For Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip.
0: Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The film strip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.